And again, thanks for being here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. Just want to extend a special welcome to you and would love to say hi to you afterwards and, and meet you, uh, as I know would uh, any number of our congregation members. And um, just add my encouragement to Amy is to stop by the guest table at the end if you are newer. We'd love to meet you and know you were here with us. Um, as we are moving to two services, and that is happening uh, next Sunday, so if you come at 10 o'clock next Sunday, you'll either be really late or really early. Um, so we're have 9 and 10.45. And just as a reminder, uh, and I'm so excited about this, during our 9 a.m. service, we will have our elementary school students with us uh, always. So during the 9 a.m. service, we'll have programming for uh, birth through kindergarten, but our elementary school students will be joining with us in uh, corporate worship up here uh, in the sanctuary and worship center. And uh, to assist with uh, elementary students uh, following along and engaging in the message, we have the Kid Connect, which is something we provide each and every week. And so um, students, make sure you grab one of these uh, so you can track along with the sermon while we're doing that. Also, uh, speaking of students, older students, high school students are on their retreat. We actually had 18 high school students, uh, middle school and high school students on our uh, annual student ministries retreat across all campuses as long, along with our sister church, Christian Fellowship Baptist. And so uh, Paul Brandis and a number of our volunteers and students are out doing that this morning and uh, we've been praying for them. It's just really encouraging to see the number of students uh, joining in that. This week. Well, as we uh, turn to Psalm 104 and reflect on this question of, of praising and how that works, um, I'd love to begin our time with prayer and uh, asking God for his help in this. So, Father in heaven, now you are a God who speaks to us, and we pray now that you would um, help us to listen. Uh, you're asking us that question, are you listening? And I pray this morning, would, would we listen to your voice uh, as it speaks to us through these psalms? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we love most, we praise the most. What we love the most is what we inevitably end up praising the most. And I don't know if I knew how true that statement was uh, until I had a daughter, and uh, once Lucy was born, um, I realized that whenever someone asks me, how's Lucy doing or, or what's she doing these days, I always have to sort of begin self-filtering because I'm always tempted to say way too much. Uh, because I have an endless uh, list of stories and anecdotes and, and cute things that she's doing. And I have to realize when someone asks that question, they maybe want like one story, Bill. They, they don't need to keep going on and on. And if someone asks a picture, do you have a picture? Of course, I have a picture. Actually, I think asking, um, do you have a picture, uh, is probably one of the most dangerous questions you can ask to a grandparent with an iPhone. So um, if you've got a grandparent with an iPhone, do you have a picture of your grandkids? Yes, I've got 1,500 of them, and I'd love to show you them all. And I was actually reminded that a few years ago, Rachel and I were on vacation, and we were at Maggiano's, which is one of my all-time favorite Italian restaurants. There isn't one here in Kansas City, but there's one out in Scottsdale. And we were waiting in line there. We had our daughter, uh, Lucy, with us. She was probably five months old. And we were standing in line next to this older couple, and they started talking to us. And they said, oh, how old's your, your daughter? And, oh, we have a grandchild. And before I knew it, the, the grandfather had his phone out, was showing us videos of his grandson taking his first steps. I mean, I have never met this guy before. Uh, I live a thousand miles away. I'm never going to see him again. And yet he couldn't help but show me a video of his grandson taking his first steps. And so why is this? Because we, we, what we love most, we can't help but praising. And, and here's the point. I've, I've never once had to work to praise and adore Lucy. 
I've never once found myself with nothing to say when someone asked me about her. And why is this? Again, because what we love the most, we praise the most. We're hardwired for this. We, we can't help but praise. When you see a beautiful piece of art or r- see a great film or read an incredible book or uh, have an afternoon at the beach or in the mountains, when you get the new iPhone or, or a new Lego set or a new set of, of modifications for your, your Minecraft world, or download the new Taylor Swift album. Whatever it is for you that you love, you can't help but be excited about it. Praise it. We can't help but worship. And, and just try now. I'd encourage you, maybe the rest of the day or tomorrow, just try to go through a whole day and, and try not to praise something. It, it's almost impossible because as soon as we find ourselves experiencing something we enjoy, we can't help but, but praise what we love the most, we praise the most. Now, here's the tension. If you know anything about the Bible or Christianity, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, you know that Christians are supposed to praise God, that He's supposed to be our highest praise and delight, that we're supposed to love Him the most and therefore praise Him the most. And if that's true, we realize quickly that something's wrong because we can't help but praise. And what we love the most, we do praise the most. And that's supposed to be God. And yet, even as I look at my own life, God's not often the thing that I praise the most. Are you following me? And this is where um, Psalm 104 begins to help us. Because this week, as we have for the past five weeks, we've been looking at the book of Psalms as a way of learning to pray. The Psalms are this, they're really an ancient collection of, of prayers, of sung prayers. This is the prayer book of the, of the ancient Israelites. It's the prayer book of Jesus. Um, it's the prayer book of the church, both now and around the world. And so if you're reading through these Psalms, know that people, Christians all over the world, even today, are reading these same Psalms, that we're joining in with them in prayer. We began by looking at Psalm 1 and 2 as sort of a gateway into prayer. And then we looked at Psalm 3 as, as a picture of desperation being the primary condition for prayer. And the kind of Psalms 4 and 5 taught us these rhythms of morning and evening prayer. And then we've been looking at different elements of prayer, confession, lament, and today praise. And as we look at Psalm 104, we're going to think through three questions And the first question, why is it so difficult to worship? Why do we find it so hard to praise? And then second, we're going to ask, is is our God worth it? And then finally, how do we actually do it? So why is it so hard? Is it actually worth it? And then how do we begin to do it? So first of all, why is praising God so difficult? Why is it so hard to worship? And this question confronts us right at the beginning of the psalm because the psalmist just starts off with this sort of ecstatic burst of praise. This, bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. In this language of bless, you could easily translate that praise. Praise the Lord. Worship the Lord. And this expression and those like it, they occur all over the psalms, really all over the Bible. And it actually raises several problems for us that get at the heart of why worshiping is so difficult. And the first problem is that all these calls to praise in the Psalms, 
can actually seem to make God feel a little bit self-centered. And this is actually a charge that uh, a number of kind of popular atheist writers will bring against Christianity. Um, Daniel Dennett, for example, uh, sort of uses this motion, uh, this notion to dismiss kind of the Jewish and Christian scriptures as hopelessly egocentric. He writes this, he says, part of what makes Jehovah such a fascinating character is his king-like jealousy and pride. He has great appetite for praise and sacrifice But we've moved on beyond this God, haven't we? This is Daniel Dennett's question. Haven't we moved beyond this kind of a God? And it's an important question to raise, because especially if you're here this morning and you don't yet consider yourself a Christian or you're just sort of exploring what it means to follow Jesus, maybe this is one of the things that's held you back and, and made you wonder about the plausibility of this faith. And there may be uh, a number of reasons for that, but I think one of the things is that we just don't like hearing someone talk about how great they are or demanding that others tell them how great they are. I was reminded of this this week. I was watching a little bit of a, a clip of an interview um, of a, with, with Floyd Mayweather, the boxer. And people are already chuckling because this guy, right? I mean, he is really into Floyd Mayweather. Uh, and, and I know that boxing is sort of a sport of bravado and showmanship and, and big talk. And I, I mean, I get that, but he kind of takes it to the next level. At one point in the interview, he says, I am the greatest fighter ever. I'm that great that I make it look so easy. I'm just a special artist who paints a beautiful picture. You know, and even if what he's saying is true, it's hard not to feel a bit off-put by him saying that about himself. Well, decades before Daniel Dennett struggled with this question of God calling for praise, C.S. Lewis also wrestled with the same question in his book, Reflection on the Psalms. And Lewis had a breakthrough that really became a breakthrough for me. And I just want to read you a, a short portion of Lewis's reflection on this problem. And Lewis says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. Lewis says, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, and this is so key, because the praise not only expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. He says it's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And Lewis says it's frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. You see, the psalmists are calling on us to praise God because, because they sort of can't help it. Their own enjoyment of God isn't complete until they invite us into that enjoyment with them. But this leads us to a second problem that makes praising God so difficult, and that is that we, we just love other things more. That if what we love the most is what we praise the most, maybe part of the problem is we just, we just love other things more. And deep down, this means that nearly all of our problems are praise problems. And let me explain what I mean by that. You see, so much of our unhappiness, so much of our, our pain, our heartache, come from loving the right things, but in the wrong order. 
from loving the right things, but loving them in the wrong order. So, for example, uh, probably a desire that, that many of us have here this morning is, is a desire for, for marriage and children. And that's a good thing. It's a good desire. But if you love those things supremely, you will always be unhappy, both if you have them and if you don't have them. Because if you don't have them, then you always feel as though the one thing in your life that would really make it complete, that would really make you feel whole is missing. But it also is going to make you unhappy if you actually do get those things. Because one, they'll never live up to the hopes that you have. They can never meet the expectations. And two, you'll never be able to meet the obligations that those things put on you. And, and the same is true with success in a career or in school or in sports, all of these things. If you make them into an ultimate thing, they'll always let you down. They're good things. They just can't be an ultimate thing. And this is where the Psalms actually become so powerful because not only do they give us language with which to praise God, but over time they begin to reshape and reorder what we love. See, praise more than any other element of prayer changes who we are. Because you can confess sin and not really change what you love. You can ask God for things in prayer and still be really self-centered. But when you begin to praise God in prayer, it actually changes you. It reshapes what you love and the order in which you love them. Okay, but there's a third problem that stifles our praise. And that is that we're just not paying attention. We're just not paying attention. The world around us, the people, the beauty of nature, even God's Word can so easily become dull and commonplace. Um, artists, especially photographers, uh, have, have a term for this phenomenon, and it's called visual lethargy. It means the, the more you see something, the less you really see it. The, the more you're familiar with a, a space, the less you really notice the details. And that's why a creatively composed photograph or a really um, precisely cropped close-up can actually make something that you see every day, like a street sign or a building, seem fresh and new. You see, today we live in what a Microsoft executive, executive called an age of continuous partial attention. Do you feel that? That we live in an age of continuous partial attention. That, that we're texting while we're watching TV, or we're looking up actors on IMDb while we're watching the movie. Rachel hates when I do that. I love doing that. Where, what else is that guy in? She's like, put away your phone and watch the movie. <laughs> Um, we're keeping an eye on the Royals game while we're finishing up our homework. And this continuous partial attention means we don't notice the world around us. And we begin to lose our sense of wonder. In this moment, I even have to tell a Lucy story. We were out in the backyard, uh, and it was one of those afternoons where you can kind of see the moon during the day. And, and she loves this book, Good Night Moon. And I don't know. I probably saw the moon there. I didn't even notice. And all of a sudden, she says, moon, moon, moon. Or she notices every airplane in the sky, airplane, airplane. I've tuned all that stuff out long ago. So there's a vividness um, to the world that often we miss. And we just end up being not that impressed with God. So Psalm 104 begins with this call of, bless the Lord, O my soul. O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. 
Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. That's usually about the extent of my praise in prayers. <laughs> so it's like, okay, God, you're very great, and now can we talk about some of the stuff that I need? But in the Psalm 104, the psalmist is just getting started. That's just the thesis statement for this poem. And so this morning, I actually want to read for you all of Psalm 104. And it's long. It's going to feel like I'm going to read forever, but I promise I will stop. But as we read, I want to encourage you to do two things. One, pull it up on your, if you have a Bible, grab one of the pew Bibles, pull it up on your phone. I'd love for you to follow along. And I want you to listen and watch for a couple of key images. Because what the psalmist highlights in Psalm 104 is God as an amazing worker. And there's so many ways that you see him at work. So I want you to listen for these. He's the artist. He's the gardener the chef, the zookeeper, the astronomer, the marine biologist. He's the master planner. So as we read this psalm, look for where those images, look for where those, that work comes in. Again, the artist, the gardener, the chef, the zookeeper, the astronomer, the marine biologist, the master planner. So listen to Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth in its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in valleys that they may flow between the hills. You give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside the birds, besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. And you plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You made the darkness and it is night. When the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking food from their God. And when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down from their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of all your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it or to play with it. These all look to you to give, you, to give them food in due season. 
When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May, the med- may my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Maybe that's the longest you've ever heard anyone read the Bible uh, out loud in church or anywhere. Um, Probably it's going to happen anywhere. It's going to be in church. Um, So the question for us as we read those 35 verses is, is our God really worth the trouble? And the psalmist seems to think so. But did you notice specifically as we read those how aware the psalmist is of God's work in the world. Uh, New York Times columnist uh, Thomas Friedman, who actually was the one who popularized that phrase, continuous partial attention, he tells the story of hiking through the Peruvian jungle, and he talks about the guide that was leading them through the jungle. And this guide didn't have a, a smartphone. I don't think he had a laptop. He didn't have any kind of connection. But Friedman points out that he didn't suffer from continuous partial attention that the guide noticed everything, every bird, every insect, every animal, every chirp and whistle and howl and crackle. And he writes this. He said, he was totally disconnected from the web, but totally in touch with the incredible web of life around him. That's a perfect description of the psalmist. And the first thing he notices is that no one anywhere works harder than God. So why is God worth the trouble? Well, the first thing we see is that he, he's the great worker. No one does anything better than him. He's the, our world's a masterpiece. No one anywhere works harder than God. He has the greatest vocation. He's the first, the last, the greatest worker. And in this psalm, did you see those pieces come out? He's the great architect, the great artist, the engineer, the construction worker. You see that in, in verses 2 through 6. He's laying out the beams. He's stretching out the heavens, laying the foundations. In verses 8 through 14, uh, he's the gardener. He's the landscaper. He's, he's the water engineer. He's shaping the contours of the land. He sets up an irrigation system. He plants grass seed. And then in, in verses 14 and 15, he's the, he's the chef, he's the sommelier, he's providing rich meals of, of bread and wine and oil for those at his table. I had a professor in, in seminary, Graham Cole, who was my mentor, and he would always say of that verse that, you know, God gave wine to gladden the heart, and I'll drink to that. He was an Australian, so it, it, always, it always fits so well. He built the forest as a home for the birds. He cares for the stork, the wild goats, the badgers, the lions. God is the ultimate zookeeper. The consistency of the moon and the seasons, the routine and beauty of the sunrise and the sunset. He's the the ultimate astronomer. Every sea creature, even the ones that are kind of mysterious, this Leviathan, even they belong to God. 
Even the Leviathan, the sea monster. If you were here with us last week, you remember uh, Pastor Anthony unpacked for us this image of the sea being a place for ancient Israelites was not a place where you wanted to go on holiday and admire the beach. The sea was a picture of of chaos and, and death and fear and darkness. And Leviathan, kind of the great sea monster who dwelt in, that sea, in the sea, was, was the kind of the perfect symbol of all that the sea represented. And the psalmist is kind of like, we don't know what lives down there in the ocean, but we're pretty sure we're afraid of it. Um, and the psalmist says of Leviathan, God, look, he's, he's your plaything. He's your pet. <laughs> he's like your little goldfish that lives in a bowl. You formed Leviathan to play with. Everything, God, looks to you. Everything lives or dies, it's on your command. God is not sort of this deistic God who, who wound up the world and then let it go and is in separate part. No, every day he's involved in it all the time, sustaining his creatures. In our work, our vocation, what we do Monday through Saturday is a part of God's sustaining work in the world. But, but no one works harder than he. No one has a bigger description, job description than God. And then second, we see that our God is worth it because nothing on earth compares with him. And if this is just true, and I, and I realize that some of you here this morning might not believe this, and I assure you there are times when I think we all wrestle with doubt, but, but if it's true that he's done all this, that he's made all this, then he must be greater than the world he's made, that nothing on earth can compare with him. And when the psalmist looks at the wonders and beauties and pleasures of the earth, he assumes there must be a God to praise for all of this. And that that God must be greater and more glorious than what he's made. And scholars point out that as you look at Psalm 104, not only is God just, is the psalmist just looking out at the world and praising God, he's also reflecting on Scripture. Because if you, if you know Genesis chapters 1 and 2, if you've read through those chapters, if you haven't, I'd encourage you to do that at some point. You see the, the, him creating the world, and this is a reflection on God's work of creation. You see, this God is one where everything is full of beauty and joy and love that all belongs to him. And so often we stop at only admiring the creation that he's made and we don't look along creation to see the God who has made it. C.S. Lewis uses this great image. He says it's almost as if we become so enamored with the postman's uniform that we don't take the letters that he's come to bring us. That's what happens when we only look at creation and don't allow us to point it on to God. So he's the hardest worker. Nothing on earth compares with him. And then third, nothing in heaven competes with him. Nothing in heaven competes with him. And this is subtle in the text, but it's there. You see, not just on earth, but no other gods or worldviews can possibly come close. So how is this in the text? Where do we see this? Well, it's not explicit at first, at least not to us. But if you talk to those who are fluent in ancient Near Eastern literature, I don't know if we have any of those here this morning, it's absolutely clear. Because in this hymn, this psalm, this psalm of praise, there are echoes of lots of other hymns to lots of other gods that surrounded the Israelites. 
The psalmist uses language that's very similar in images to those that the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites used as well. So all the things that are said of God in this psalm, the other nations and, and religions said this of their gods, of Shemesh or Aten or Marduk or Baal. They did all these things. That's what they said. But the psalmist, with great joy and confidence, he uses God's personal name, Yahweh, the Lord in all caps. He uses that ten times throughout the psalm. Whereas for the other religions, the sun and the moon are gods. For the, for the Israelites, God is the one God who's made all those things. And the psalmist wants us to know that not only is God the greatest worker, not only is, as far, is he far superior to his own creation, but no other gods can possibly compete with him. And while we want to be sensitive to other religions and faiths and gracious to all people, one of the messages that is so clear from the scriptures and in the psalm is that we're not worshiping the same God, that that not all roads lead to the same place, not every path is the same, and the psalmist wants us to celebrate and delight in Yahweh, the one true God. Okay, so then how do we actually do this? How do we actually go about praising this, this one true God who's made everything? And there's just three quick things I want to highlight here for us. First, let every attempt to praise God be fueled by Scripture. If you don't know how to praise God or you don't know where to start in praise, start with Psalm 104 or another one of the Psalms. Make those words your own. I mean, that's really what the psalmist is doing with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He has his Bible open to Genesis 1 and 2, and he's just praying those words back to God. And we can do that with almost any portion of Scripture. Take the words and turn them into praise to God. And not only is this the easiest place to start in praise, it also ensures that we're actually worshiping the one true God and not a God of our imagination or one that we are just sort of making up or one that we want to exist not just a God that we imagine. So let every attempt be fueled by Scripture. Second, as you're learning, try this out. Let every request start with praise. Let every request start with praise. So whenever you go in prayer to ask God for something, begin that request with praise. So let me give you some examples of how this works out. It doesn't have to be complex. It can be simple. So let's say you have a friend who's sick. You might pray this way. God, you are the powerful healer. Praise. Would you heal our friend? Request. So you're rerouting that request for healing in something that's true of who God is. God, you're the redeemer, the reconciler. Would you redeem my relationship? Would you reconcile me with my spouse? God, you're the great God of, of, of justice. Would you bring healing and reconciliation and justice to our neighborhood? Do you follow that? It's an easy place to begin, and it actually begins to shape the kinds of requests that you pray to God, because you realize suddenly, if I can't root the request that I have for God in something about his character, maybe I need to stop and ask, God, is this something you really want me asking for? And then finally, let every pleasure end with praise. So when you're down on the plaza and you're seated at Capitol Grill and they bring out that steak and you take that first bite, 
let that be a moment to praise God. (laughs) Even those small things, a good glass of wine, a good night's sleep, praise God who gives you rest. Now, lately, I often arrive at church early in the morning before the sun is up, and this time of year, I mean, these are just small things, but let every little pleasure come to praise. As I'm walking up the driveway here, off to the east, you can see just kind of above the trees, you see Venus shining really brightly, and you can see on a clear day, a clear night, Orion kind of standing guard. I've tried to slow down and pay attention and just enjoy those moments of beauty. Let every pleasure end with praise. Let every moment of joy lead you to its source, the God of Psalm 104. By default, we worship what God has made rather than Him. We worship the creature rather than the Creator. But instead of, of worshiping what God has made, allow the things that God has made direct us to praising Him. Those are all his gifts. He's made them. He's given them to us. So praise him and thank him for them. And when we learn to worship, it reorders our loves. It gives us a new confidence and joy because this is our God, this amazing God who's made an amazing world. But it it also humbles us because he's the God who looks at the earth and it trembles. He, He touches the mountains and they smoke. And you quickly realize, like the psalmist, that something doesn't quite fit on God's good earth, that there's something that abuses, there's something that destroys, there's something that fails to worship. And so understandably, the psalmist declares, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. It's like the psalmist in this psalm, he's looking around at the world and he's seeing trees, animals, mountains, sinners. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't delight in God. One of these things doesn't belong. And here's the thing, that's me. That's you. We're the ones who are out of step, who don't belong. Our loves are confused. Our worship is disordered. And I've been following Jesus for a long time, but I'm regularly reminded and I regularly see new spaces where I prefer God's gifts. I prefer what he's made rather than him. I'm growing in this and God's revealing and changing and working. And yet rather than abandon us, rather than consume us, our God has come to rescue us. He's come to do what we could never do, to make us perfect worshipers, every one of us, which is our highest and greatest joy. It's the end for which we were created. It's the work that he's begun in it. It's the work he promises to complete because Jesus was consumed on our behalf. So now for we who trust in him, even our broken and insufficient praise is a delight to our Father. One of the most fascinating verses in all of Psalm 104, I don't know if you caught this, but I've just been pondering over this all week long, is verse 31 where it says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. And then the psalmist says, may the Lord rejoice in his works. May the Lord rejoice in his works. The psalmist even tells God to worship God in the psalm. It's almost as he's saying, God, I hope you're sitting back and enjoying all that you have done. So can you see it? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, delighting in one another delighting in the world that they have made, 
singing with joy over the redemption that has been won, looking at us, the children, making worshipers of us all. So bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are very great. You are the one who has made us, who has formed us. You are the one who has redeemed us. And you are the one who will restore all things to the way they ought to be. So I pray now that you would make us so love you that we can't help but to praise you. And with St. Augustine, I just I pray that you would give what you demand, that you would make us the kind of people who delight to praise you. In Jesus' name.